If I tell an athlete just to sprint through these laser timers for two hours, nobody's going to do it. But I have them play a game or I have them race each other or I change variations. Like one of the biggest things it does is keep lifters interested. It's building up these all these weak points and doing this, but it's keeping lifters interested in actual lifting. And it's ignored a bunch with coaches that don't want to see it and they just want to say, you guys are just playing like that's all you're doing that you're just wasting time like i'm not here to have fun with my athletes it's like no you're here to get results with your athletes and that's exactly what we're doing and we can have fun while we do that hey guys so before we get started with this week's podcast i want to remind you that we have our retreats for sale this year so we do have one of our retreats sold out but we still have spots for two of our retreats and if you love the content that we've been putting out with the evolve move play podcast and you want to really understand in your body what it's like to put together deep movement practice with mindfulness with nature connection and with community you owe it to yourself to jump on a call and see if these events are right for you so you can jump on the link in my bio and i look forward to seeing you on the call so austin welcome to the podcast so i have been mispronouncing your name this whole time it's not jochem it's yokum it's Yoakum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's every, everybody, man. It, it spells so different. Whenever I run the pro- podcast, I make sure I ask everybody how to say their name because my name's messed up. It's been messed up for like 22 years or 27 years of sports. So it's yeah. it's kind of the same. I, I'm, I'm there by now. <laughs> my last name is spelled with an E-Y at the end, but Kelly is like a super common name. So everyone just doesn't put the E-Y there. <laughs> yeah. People who work for me forget to put the EY there. It's terrible. Um, so you run Yokum Strength Academy? Uh, Yokum Strength, and what's the last part? The Yokum Strength, Yokum Strength Training. Um, but yeah, if we, if we got it to an academy point, that'd be pretty sweet. But I don't know if it's that official yet. <laughs> okay. And you've got a podcast of your own. Um, you, you're pretty active on social media. So I, you and I, I think, interacted first via Joel Smith in the Just Performance Fly podcast. I think you saw me on his podcast. And then, did we have a conversation on his podcast together as well? Uh, no, I actually heard about you through my coworker. He told me I had to have you on. And then I heard you on Joel's podcast. And then I had you on my podcast. Yeah. I think it was the whole setup. And that was okay. like probably three years ago. It was probably pre COVID, three years yeah. ago. Yeah. 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 Sounds about right. I couldn't keep track of it. Uh, yeah. Just trying to trying to remember. So you were just telling me before we turn the camera or turn the recording on that your callus. We were talking about calluses and getting the entire hand to get calloused instead of just the fingers um, and, and just the, the just below the fingers as we do often with barbells and rings and and, and bars. And then you uh, you've been picking up a bouldering. And uh, you're getting some callus now in the, in the middle of your your hand as well. So tell me about about how that experience has been about bouldering and and what that what that's taught you. Yeah, for the people that don't know what the heck you and I are talking about on yeah. my podcast, I remember you you went on this long rant talking about how like most like we talk about like tough strong hands or whatever, and all all these power lifters have the same like kind of calluses. It's like the four calluses on the top of their hand, and you're saying all this and talking about how that's pretty much a weak hand. Like the yeah. all these other points in your hand are weak. And I was looking at my hand, I'm like, damn, that's my hand, man. Like <laughs> that is my hand. And I just started getting into, I just started getting into a little bit of climbing, like in the gym, and then some a lot of gymnastics and crawl type movements, but nothing really full on bouldering. Um, and this past January, my girlfriend actually took me for, for the first time. She's pretty big into pretty, pretty big into climbing and bouldering. And she took me for the first time and I went and I was like, what is this? Like, what am I, what, what am I feeling? In my fingers, what am I feeling in my hands? Um, and just, just 
they have kind of taken it from there. So it's been almost been 11 months now of, of bouldering pretty much once or twice, once for sure a week, twice a week, um, try to get there twice a week. But, um, the different one, one of the things like we talk about, like the, the hip, like she comments all the time on like the hip mobility that you just randomly get. Like I talk about it, like it's, it's like active hip mobility for two hours. It's, it's active, like pull-ups for two hours. It's active problem solving for two hours. There's so many like cool things that are happening with my body without even realizing, like without putting my body through this stretch routine for two hours, without doing 900 pull-ups like every single day, you know, there's just so many cool things that I've noticed with my body. And, um, it's kind of all in this problem solving setting that I think I, I try to get all of my athletes to do with me. We, we try to we bring a group there twice a week and try to get all of my athletes kind of integrated into this way of seeing movement and way of seeing kind of climbing. Yeah, that's awesome. What kind of, um, have impact have you noticed on the athletes for adding in something like bouldering rather than a more traditional strength exercise? So this, this, the, the point there. So the biggest eye opener for me, and this is, I know I'm a meathead you're going to probably hate this answer, but I know I'm a meathead because I was bouldering and I was just, and I was loving it. Like I was loving the feeling of doing all this. I was loving getting into it. But honestly, I went back to a hex bar deadlift without even realizing it. And I pulled my old PR with no belt, no straps, nothing. And I looked, I was, and I was like, and I, I can't tell you, like I sat there and I looked, I was like, what, what, like an RPE six. I was like, what just happened? And I was like thinking about, I was like, well, the only difference in my training right now is that I started bouldering and started climbing. So that really got like solidified. I know it's a meathead and like, you shouldn't need like that barbell, but I was like, wow, like, okay. So now we started implementing, well, like the grip strength is crazy. We talked about the, like just watching the positions our athletes hips are able to get into is, is pretty nuts. Um, a lot of it's, it's, it's pretty fluid too. Like I, I for the athletes that are people, coaches that are listening that don't really know, which I'm obviously it's going to be a biased in this uh, podcast and because they, they know you and they know what you're into. But for the coaches that don't know, like record a bouldering session and just watch the positions the athletes get into. It's been one of my favorite things of just screenshotting moments of like, you're, you're in this like almost split position with one arm overhead. And like <laughs> you're working this T-spine mobility drill that's going famous on Instagram, but you're working <laughs> it for like two hours while you're working on this split position in this stretch. So that there's so many cool things that I've just been watching, but the really, the big thing that really got me in was I pulled my old like hex bar deadlift for like an RP six with no straps or belts. And I just kept going from there. And I was like, and it really hasn't really hasn't stopped like the, the gains from that aspect of it. Yeah. So for anyone who's not familiar, RP stands for perceived rate of exertion. Um, so you're, you're saying that something that was a 10, that was as hard as you possibly did. You walk back to it, found it was like 60% of your effort to do it, which is incredible. And I mean, that, that, that accords really well with like the fact that we see consistently with parkour athletes who are not, you know, climbing uh, kind of in as much diversity as boulders, doing a lot of climbing actions, a lot of pulling with their upper body. Um, it's really common, obviously, in tons of leg development. It's very common for them with zero training background to pull double body weight on a deadlift on the first attempt. They've reached a high level of parkour. You know, double body weight deadlift is not a difficult task for them. So we do see that really cool transfer effect. It's kind of funny that you brought that up, right? Just randomly at the beginning of our conversation here, because I, you know, you know, I train climbing trees, jumping around, vaulting um, for, I sprained my ankle about six weeks ago. So for a variety of reasons, some health impacts that I've, I've been dealing with, I've been primarily training at a local ninja warrior gym. So there's a really sweet uh, ninja gym called Life Force Ninja. And um, a lot of the local parkour kids are training there. They work there. 
my kids love going there. My wife loves going there. So it just works to just like take my whole family there and train. <clears throat> and so then I've been working on my ancillary training, my strength training, and I've been working on ring muscle-ups, right, as my slow strength. So I'm going in and I'm doing dinos and swings and climb-ups. And then in Warrior Gym, I'm really making sure I'm getting a good volume of that every time I go in. And then I'll go in and I'll do my slow strength in uh, in a traditional gym, right? And I was wondering to myself, like, just the other day, I was like, maybe I should just switch it out and do bouldering. My wife boulders at a, at a gym, but I haven't been going to the bouldering gym because I'm always either at the, the regular gym or um, or my, um, or the, uh, sorry, the Ninja Warrior gym. And I was writing this post about how complexity transfers better to simplicity than vice versa. Now, you know, I don't, you know, nobody's ever done this study, but I was speculating that if you put someone on like just a, a pull-up training program for a year and they started at like five pull-ups, maybe they get to 20 pull-ups at the end of the year, right? But if you just had them rock climb three days a week, boulder, it might get to 15 pull-ups just from the boulder. But your grade in pull, uh, you, know, you could go up three grades maybe in a year of uh, of climbing. And if you just did the pull-ups, you're not going to go up a grade at all, um, most likely. So you're you're going to see this much better transfer from the more complex aspect to the, the less complex aspect. So I'm just curious, have you seen that? Have you seen that how you put you have an athlete do a more complex thing and then you go back to those big sexy metrics that everybody wants because they're very easy to measure and see that transfer. You, you talked about your own hex bar deadlift. What other kinds of transfers have you seen with the athletes you work with? Yeah, well, 100%. This is the like complexity to simplicity is also a thing that I've been kind of thinking about. And it's like sport is training, you know, parkour is training. And this is something, especially in the American football world and American strength conditioning world, like we don't see. It's like they, like they talk about like um, a lot of like the parkour stuff, the rolling around stuff, the climb. It's like they say it's playing around. Like mm -hmm. it's like it's it's not like look at the stimulus that you are. But, it is, about. but it's not. But Exactly, exactly. But like, like one, you're you're having fun doing it. Like you're giving them a reason for movement, which I think is huge. And I know you feel that's huge as well. But two, like just talking to straight meathead, like, okay, like we're eliminating, like if you just want to eliminate the psychology behind it. And like these, a lot of these meatheads want to do is like, okay, but like, okay, we're here to work and we're here to like, we're doing work. Like, like I keep, like, that's why I love bringing up climbing. Cause it's super obvious. Like we're doing hip mobility for two hours. Like we're doing all these things, but a hundred percent, we do all these games. Um, we do all this parkour based jumps and we'll go back to a, like a jump mat. We'll go back to these laser timers and uh, way faster, way faster than the other way around where, and th then I know because traditionally before, before I got into this realm of things before three years ago, when we got into these podcasts and I had guests like yourself on, we were doing the traditional model. We were doing the simplistic, we were doing the output based model. And like you said, I, I love the example you brought up. It's like, you could start from one pull up to go to 20 pull ups, but it's like that slow gradual, like kind of process. Whereas now you can do bouldering and you can come back and be like holy shit i can do 15 pull-ups holy shit i can run a flying 10 in under like a sub one flying 10 we haven't ran these like what is this like uh, i can jump uh 35 inches on this vert mat baby and we've been goofing around in quotations and that i really like to tie it back into because i'm in this woo woo -wee, like headspace and i'm a, i'm a creative aspect so i like seeing things and like the psychology aspect and like the, the the how much they're enjoying it and the intent that they have behind it but it's also like 
it's one of the only ways to get that much volume done. It's one of the only ways to get that big of a stimulus in is to kind of distract them from the stimulus itself, which I think is huge and not talked about enough is you'll never get somebody, you'll get somebody burnt out on pull-ups. Like you can't have, you can't, you could just say two hours of pull-ups on the board, do it. But I mean, like the, the athletes, nobody's really going to do that. It's not realistic. I bring an athlete to a bouldering gym, they'll climb for two hours. They, like they're doing the same thing. Same with sprinting. If I tell an athlete just to sprint through these laser timers for two hours, nobody's going to do it. But I have them play a game or I have them race each other or I change variations. Like bring in, and it's kind of like the the beauty of like the conjugate system for power lifters. Like what, one of the biggest things it does is keep lifters interested. It, it's building up these all these weak points and doing this, but it's keeping lift, lifters interested in actual lifting and not getting burnt out and doing the same thing. So you can always PR, you can always keep the intent in psychology be there um, with what you're doing. So that that's a huge thing that I do. It's that that complexity, simplicity, because the complexity allows you to almost distract yourself from the huge stimulus that you're getting into your body. Uh, and it's ignored a bunch with coaches that don't want to see it. And they just want to say, you guys are just playing like that's all you're doing that you're just wasting time like i'm not here to have fun with my athletes it's like no you're here to get results with your athletes and that's exactly what we're doing and we can have fun while we do that and just not hate training yes when someone says they're just playing you can say yeah we're engaging the most powerful self-education uh program there is designed by evolution creates the highest (laughs) motivation states and develops the entire human being, right? Um, one thing that that I've heard you talk about, and I've heard a lot of people in this kind of space of, uh, I think of you in the, in the sense of people who are approaching movement from the strength and conditioning or uh, sports performance world. So there's a, this overlap that's happening now between people who are thinking about movement stuff and people who are coming from the sports performance world. Um, and one story I hear a lot about kind of from you, from like Jamie Smith, from other folks is I was the meathead. I was the guy who would do the pull-ups in the gym and it didn't actually make me the best athlete. So um, tell me if I'm I'm correct here. Your training population is mostly athletes. It's mostly people who are working towards um, competitive sport goals. Correct. So I'm just what what occurs to me is that a lot of those people aren't actually people who are highly motivated by training itself. They are highly made motivated by doing athletic things. So what you're bringing up here is that not only is the just playing potentially very effective, it might actually even be more effective for the specific population that so many sports performance coaches are trying to work with, which is athletes because they're motivated by doing competitive athletic stuff. They're not motivated by notching another pull-up on the board necessarily. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and you're you're right on. And like they're they're motivated by winning, like they're athletes. They're motivated by winning. And the higher level of athletes that you get, the higher they like do not care. Like you got it, you got to gamify for them, which is why like the sports science world is is good for them because they can see numbers and they they talk intense all the time. But again, that that goes back. Like it's a good way to motivate them when you go numbers. But those numbers are so simplistic and so specific to what you're doing that is not actually applying to their general like sport of what they're doing. So I I really think we can motivate these athletes that come to you because they want to win. Like they come to you because they want to win at their sport. They want to be better at their sport. They did not come to you because they wanted to do another pull up. If doing another pull up allows them to win and you can convince them in the headspace of that pull up is then they'll then they'll get the intent behind it. Then they'll do it. But you and I both know that's not true. Like another pull up and then that's not what's going to get them to win. So Mm -hmm. gamifying things for them, creating like a playful environment, 
and then having the intent that is automatically created with those athletes, it, it, it's game changing. And like, I, w- I was in the same boat myself. It's like, I, I thought I loved training until the goal of training was taken away. And I was like, I hate this. Like, I hate this. I, I, I remember it was like a six month period post, like post collegiate sport. I had nothing to train for. And I hated like, and then I, you could not get me out of a weight room before I was a total. I thought I was just this ultimate meathead and I would go through and I was like, I can't, I don't want to lift right now. I don't want to do any of this. I like, was so, I felt like this burnt, like this, we talk about burnt out all the time. Like I felt this burnt out thing. It's like, I really don't think people are burnt out. I really think people have lost sight of what they are training for. And that was exactly it for me. And it's almost all of my athletes. They come in and they're like, man, I hated training. And now like, I want to come here. I want to do this. Like, and, then, and once you get that athlete, like addicted to the process of like wanting to do something and all you have to do is gamify it and give them the reason that they came to you for like, and then you can go anywhere with it. Like, and then you're not dragging. Like, I feel like a lot of coaches spend 90% of their effort just dragging these athletes through what they're doing rather than taking a step back and be like, what, how can, how can we not drag them? Like, why are you guys here? Like, what do you guys want to do? Okay. And then give the stimulus through what they want to do through their lens. Not through like, I talk about like the tight polo lens of like, you are like, you're, you're 4'11". Like you are not an elastic athlete. You are not a great athlete. You love lifting and you're good at it. That's why you love that aspect of it. Your athletes are 6'6", just beautiful elastic athletes. Of course they don't love what you love, man. Like take a step out of your own, like bias and view it in the way that they view it and then allow them to train that way and you're going to get so much more done uh, i have a son who's eight years old right now and um he's incredibly naturally elastic like if we set up a hurdle jump right and you just he just runs up and jumps over a hurdle he can easily clear higher than i can clear um, not 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 you know higher absolutely but higher relative to his height um already he um He's done a 19-inch um, approach vertical off one leg. He's he's at 14 inches standing, right? But he's got a five-inch differential, which per, by percentage is huge, right? And if you watch him move, his knees hardly bend when he jumps, right? Like his knees and hips barely bend down. And And there's some things that like it irritates me how he struggles sometimes to like manage deep positions. Because we wrestle and he just cannot get into like a deep wrestler stance. It's just so unnatural for him. But like I also recognize it's like this is the beauty of what he has. It's how he's built. He's definitely narrow ISA, right? Super elastic. And you're like, don't don't mess it up, right? Like having gone through generations of working with kids now, I'm like with him, like the strength training stuff we're going to do over time is going to be very much like limited dose short periods of time and um and making sure he's super motivated and enjoying it and that's gonna i think that's gonna feed him much better than trying to like get squat numbers up when he's 16 years old yeah absolutely and i I like that you said that he's struggling in that deep in that deep range of motion like those deep squat positions because those are the positions that like i like the wide isa athlete like love finding myself into like as soon as we're we're gonna go into a grappling or wrestling match like that's where i'm gonna find myself naturally into and i'm gonna try and take an elastic athlete into those states and that's that's what i think of this cool thing about sport and i love the way that you talk about sports like seeing these things too Mm -hmm. it's like seeing the positions that they're struggling in in that sense and how how do you like approach that? That that's something I'm interested in. You, you're seeing your son already that he doesn't love going into that deep squat position. Are you going to naturally try and build up? Maybe it's like a crouch walk, or maybe it's some crawls in the in that that bottom position. Are you trying to 
like tease that position, give him a little bit of movement option in that position because it's also like okay, like his beauty is that like he is yeah. an elastic athlete. That's why he doesn't like you mentioned that. Uh, so we're not just gonna straight up like load up that barbell for 405 and just crush him into the bottom yeah. of a squat, but yeah. um, like having the movement option. So like if he does get taken there, um, like he's he's comfortable there. Have you have you thought about that at all? I think wrestling is actually probably the best thing that I can do for him. It's just have him in a wrestling class doing all the wrestling ground rails, all the duck walks, all the all the shoots, right? Like that's going to create those capacities to access those deep uh squatting positions, but also gives him the the kind of uh the self-organizational ability to be good at it because of what he's already good at. So so if I was just like, "Hey, I see that you're, you know, like, oh, you don't drop your hips very far when you do a jump. Like, let's make you drop your hips further down. You know, I just make him a worse athlete. And if I just try to build it only through doing like squats with him, I feel like that's, it's not just going to give him the set of options. So through something like grappling, we are going to widen that scope of what he is exposed to and what he can do. But his capacity for elasticity is relevant, even even if he's not able to achieve the same depth of position that a lot of the other wrestlers are, he can still win because he can rely on his other attributes. And giving them that option while just kind of op- you know opening that window for him, I think that, especially for an eight-year-old, I think it's huge. Like, I... You know, I want to have Jeremy Frisch on the podcast as well and talk about like the the long term athletic development stuff. It's it's very interesting because I used to work with kids as a gymnastics coach and then as a parkour coach, right? And now I have my my son, and it's different because I'm trying to manage like being his coach and being his dad, and that's kind of a new thing actually that's happening where he's he's deciding that he wants to achieve things and he wants me to help him. So it's not like we're there and he's playing. It's like, Dad, I want to do a backflip. Come help me do this backflip, right? And so now there's this dance of like, how do you create a, a situation where he doesn't feel the weight of my expectations too much, where it becomes like inhibiting of his sense of fun and ownership? Um, yeah, so that's, I don't know, that's it's just a really interesting topic. But I think a lot of what I'm looking at with him is really a lot of what you're talking about is like, how do we find that natural motivation? the stuff that lights him up and feed it, right? Like even with wrestling, he loves the ninja gym. He'll go there every day. He he loves to wrestle with people. He doesn't necessarily love the wrestling classes. And so I'm like ta- talking with his wrestling coaches about how do we get more of the stuff that actually makes him light up? Because I don't want to burn him out on this because I know that he's the type of kid who will enjoy wrestling if he's given the right the right stuff and it's going to make him you know just a much more complete and better athlete overall to be exposed to it yeah and i think that goes back to the complexity simplicity thing it's like he's he's learning the squat and the depth pattern through wrestling like when you said wrestling is the best thing like yes (laughs) that's so cool it's like well it it goes it's almost like that constraint led approach like Mm -hmm. like how can you constrain the athlete to a sport that is more like squat based you know for that elastic based athlete and that that's 
like you can constrain it with a barbell for sure, 100%. And that's probably this for sure a piece of the journey. But again, it's like, how are you going to get an athlete to spend two hours in a squat pattern or two hours in this deep position? You know, it's, it's wrestle is going to be one of the best spots to do it because like yeah. you're going to be forced to. Like if you don't go there, that you're just going to get pinned. You're going to get picked up put on your back and pin. So I, I, I love the way that like, you're looking at movement in that sense. It's yeah. making my brain go into like, okay, like uh, adding grappling to more of that elastic base athlete to allow them to get into some of these deeper positions that they're typically not used to. And gymnastics, I think is similar too with a lot of the role patterns that, that we have a lot of the tall athletes do yeah. and they, they don't love going there to start. Yeah. No, that was actually, I was kind of along the lines. What I was just thinking is another thing that would be really powerful is um, just uh, like capoeira, right? All those deep squatting, lunging patterns that are necessarily part of the patterning of capoeira, or for that matter, hip hop dance, African dance, like get in your groove, get your butt down, get used to moving powerfully and rhythmically in those positions. Uh, and I think, especially when we're talking about young athletes, I think that stuff is so much more developmental. It's like his body's not, he, you know, working with my, my eight-year-old son, right? It's like, he's, he's incredibly powerful and explosive, right? Um, he's, in, he's so strong. He can, you know, uh, do 15 pull-ups and everything like that, but he doesn't have a lot of muscle mass and he's not going to have a lot of muscle mass for a long time. So like the impact of something like barbell training, it's, it's sort of lost on this age group anyways. It's like, wait till he's 17, 18 years old. And he wants to be bigger and more powerful to, be able to push other kids around anyways then then you can throw a barbell into the mix but for the younger kids um there's so much more to be gained from these other modalities that are inherently more fun and more motivational and i think it's probably like barbells are are like most important for like 18 to 25 year old athletes mostly males <laughs> it's like the further you get away from it going younger, the less important you want to put this kind of slow strength on. And then I think in some sense, even as you get older, like obviously you want to sustain some hypertrophy, but again, you don't have, you don't have that capacity to just put on massive amounts of, of good lean body tissue. And you don't have the same competitive drive either, where you just want to be the biggest man in the room. Right. So when you're 40, it's like, ah, it's not that interesting. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and you probably shouldn't have the drive to be, if, you, if, you, if you're at 40 and you still want to be like the biggest guy in the room, it's probably the, the ego is probably stealing away yeah. a little bit from the 20 years old. You probably have solved that, that many, uh, that many problems that you, you hope to solve. Yeah. Let me, let me back up for a second. Um, so you, you come from a, a team sport background, football background. What, what position do you play in football? Nose guard. Nose guard. So yeah. Yep. As I remember it three years ago, your physique was very different. When we, you and I were first talking, your physique did not look like it looks, it looks now, right? Because you can, you had to put on mass. How big are you? How tall are you? Uh, six one. Six one. So, yep. and you were playing collegiate football. So you were probably, how much did you, what was your playing weight? I was playing at 255 and I'm 228 right now. Yeah. So you had to shed that to do the kind of, be the kind of mover you are now. Yeah. So you start there. You're you're excelling in the weight room. You're trying to see. I hope that that translates to the field. And now, you know, you're one of the the kind of sports performance guys who's showcasing how do we integrate parkour? How do we integrate grappling? How do we integrate games into this um, the sports performance context? So tell me a little bit about your journey from you know meathead to movement maven. 
Yeah. Well, this is like, I herniated a disc in my back when I was 16 years old in high school. I was squatting like 455 as a 16 year old, like just, and I was squatting probably four or five times a week. Um, but I squatted, I herniated a disc, crashed at the bottom of a squat. I uh, went to all these PTs and rehab guys and everybody told me like, you'll never squat again. Like you'll never pick anything up. Make sure it was a lot of, it was like the McGill big three, like uh brace hold, like basically move like a robot and never enter a position in which like a bad thing could possibly happen. And it made me so fragile. Like every single thing, like I, I was able to brace my way into more barbell weight, but man, every, I walked around at least once a month for a couple of days, my back would seize. And this was for 16 until I was probably 21, 22. when I got more into this, this thought process of things, 16 to 21 or 22, at least once a month, my back would seize up and lock up on me. I know I'd be anybody with a herniated disc or nerve issues in the back. You like, you know, like there's, there's legs that go dead. Like, and you, like you physically can't move. It's not even so much pain. It's just like, you physically can't move. You feel locked up. It's a pretty scary feeling, especially when you're told like, Hey, this is broken. Like it's broken. Like you'll never be able to do it. So that really started. And I knew it kind of knew it wasn't right, right away. Like I'm looking at my grandpa, my grandpa's like 75 years old moves something better than probably 85% of the population. Like is climbing trees, chainsaws. Like, man, like he's moving like that. He's put his body, like he's jumped out of airplanes. Like he's done so much more stuff than I have. And I just kind of went through this whole journey. And I was like, at one point I was just like, I don't like the way that I move. And I'm having all these podcast guests on talk about like, you can move this fluidly. And I was looking at all these fluid and it pissed me off because I would grind, like I would grind and I would like go to play sports with these athletes and they would move just so much better than me and solve problems so much better than me. And if we got to like, I would have to drag them to the weight room to win something like to beat them in anything. <laughs> I was like, I'm training way harder than you. I'm doing all this stuff way harder than you. And we go play what I want to go play. Like I said, like, I'm motivated. Like I was motivated by the attention that the weight room gave me because you could win there. But really I was motivated by winning on the court and winning in these games. And I would go and get beat by these athletes. And it, was, it pissed me off that I wouldn't win. So I was like, how can I win? Why are these athletes moving fluid, more fluid than me? Why are they solving movement problems better than me? So it really opened my brain up to got to try something new out. So it was like right away, like it was a total shit show. It was total like trying out different like knees over toes type programs and like just things that really did not work. But they took a barbell out of my hand for the first time in my life. And how much of a prop, like just gains I had from just moving in a different way other than what I was already good at. I talk about like going from shit to suck in something, like how much progress that can lead to your life. Like starting the roll, like I couldn't forward roll when I started, like I can do front flips, back flips, all of that. Now. And I round offs, like all of it. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do a forward roll. Like that's how locked up I was like just hands on the ground, like put both your shoulder blades on the ground and roll over. I could not do it without just thumping the ground. And you see it all the time with athletes, like college athletes specifically, like they can't for, they can't be soft with the ground. Um, and that, that's like, that's like a big piece of like the fluidity aspect for me. Um, and I really went down this journey of like, how can I make myself move better? And now like, I, I don't know how to describe it in a way of like, I walk around with like my, my shoulders move, my spine moves. Like when I walk, like I, I can play any game that I want to do before. If I had like, I would have to do these like 30 minute warm ups, like any, like move around. I'd be pretty careful with what I do now. Like I can eat myself like four to five times a day. Like I'm just throwing myself out there. My bot, like I haven't had my back lock up in since I've been probably 22 years old. So four years now, uh, and it used to be once a month thing. Um, my hips feel good. And this is the best part. Like all these meatheads. Okay. Yeah. 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 All of my lifts are up. It's not even close. All of my lifts are up and that's where it's complexity, simplicity. Like everything that I do in the weight room is much higher 
Uh, I'm able to lift way more often. I'm able to do stupid stuff. Like I would not recommend my training recommend. Like I don't do, would not recommend what I do in the training like world to everybody just because like, if you're not used to it, it's probably going to break you, but I can do it without breaking. And I, I do all these things. Um, I, like I'm, I did for like six months in a row, I maxed out on a barbell lift every single day just to see if I could do it. Did it without a problem before. If I, if I pulled something from the ground or squatted in a wrong position, again, my back would seize up for three weeks and I want to be able to touch a barbell for three weeks. So that was one of the really cool pieces for me is like the show, these meatheads it's it, this play aspect of it, this fun aspect of it, this, this, this piece of it is going to lead to greater outputs. And like, I, I can show you all of it. We're adding movement tools to our, um, like movement toolbox, but we're also adding like a battery to these tools and powering all of them up. And that that's been kind of my journey through there. Nice. Um, okay. sorry, there was a thought there that, that got lost a little bit. Um, the, the back pain issue is something that we see so often with athletes and you meet so many, like for me, it's physical therapists. You see this in more than any other population. They're literally just locked in spine neutral all the time. They can't exit it. And then they hurt their backs all the time because they've trained themselves that any deviation from neutral spine is going to hurt them. Um, and I just think it's, it's such a, it's such a tragic idea. It's like, your body can flex and bend and twist and rotate. And somehow that's, that's not what it's supposed to do. It's not, we're supposed to make it strong, not doing that and never doing that. That's absurd. So how have you, like you said, your spine moves, your shoulders move. When you get athletes coming in now, how many of you could come in with that programming and how do you get them to open to the idea that their back has these greater degrees of freedom and it's important to actually express them? Uh, almost, and this is probably biased because I talk about it a lot. So the athletes that are seeing what I talk about are like, I also had that problem, but it's almost every athlete, especially when I was in, like when I, so last year was my last year in the collegiate sector, mm -hmm. um, coaching football. So we had probably 115 football guys. And I, li I like using that population better because like they're forced to train with me. Like I'm just college strength coach. It wasn't a biased population of, okay, this guy is the like movement guy and I'm not moving that great going in. So I have 115 guys, like almost all of them, almost all of them are in this locked up position, especially when we went D one and we had these bigger output guys, because these are guys. Um, so it was our first year division one, a lot of times with the division three guys, there was, it was honestly almost better because the division three guys were at the division three level because either they had huge outputs, but couldn't solve movement problems. So those guys would be locked up or they could solve movement problems, but didn't have huge outputs. So the guys that could solve movement problems, but didn't have huge outputs were honestly never that locked up because they had never squeezed the juice to try and go get those outputs. Now these division one guys have insane outputs and can solve movement problems. But a lot of times these insane outputs have been squeezed out of them. Like it's, it's the squeeze of like French contrasting them when they're, they're freshmen in high school type thing, because they show potential and it's like, okay, you show potential. We want to make you go D one. A lot of times the parents are big into it. So they'll put them in a training sector that's going to squeeze everything out of them. So these outputs have been squeezed out of them. So a lot of these D one freshmen came in and they're all locked up. I remember we had a guy that he's a freshman in college, 18 years old, bench four Oh five. And we were doing some bear crawls 
And he couldn't stay in a bear crawl position for longer than probably 10 seconds without completely crashing. Could move very fluidly. But like the, you talked about, and it, was, it really made me think of you, but it's like the pressure on the hands and wrists were too much. But can bench 405, like that stuff was wild to me. It's like, yeah. man, like we are so weak, yet we're so strong because we've squeezed the juice out of you in one specific direction that is going to uh, grab attention from a coach. Mm-hmm. And we've done it so specifically um, that we can't like, we can't expand it to anything like you should. That's the goal of my training. I want you to PR. I want you to increase outputs without ever training for, to increase outputs. If that makes sense. Like I want you to increase your bench press by 30 pounds without ever touching a bench press. Like that's when I feel like the training's really, really working and we're doing what we're supposed to do. Um, and that it's, it's not the other way around where you're squeezing this one piece of your, your, your pie. So like squeezing the bench press so much that it's not expanding to anything. And if it's not expanding to the bear crawl, I promise it's not expanding to your complex sport where like it needs to be processed in a way of that guy's coming at me. I got to punch him maybe with a single hand high, a single hand low. Like it's not going to be like a barbell. So if it's not even transitioning to something simpler, but just a little bit more complex than the barbell, it's definitely not going to transfer to your sport. So almost all of our athletes are in this. They've squeezed the lemon so far in these outputs that they're either locked up or it's not transferring to anything. And all you have to do is add just a little like variety to their movement. Just add, not even just add movement to their lives. Like crawl, climb, roll, like do some of these things and just, it'll, it'll blow your mind how quickly the, the, especially the higher the level athletes, how quickly they adapt to it, because it is what your body naturally wants to do. You talk about all these joints in your spine and like how your body's supposed to move in these ways. And we just like force it to do this other thing. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know why it's breaking. Like, it's like, of course, like you're just trying to do something with your body that is not really supposed to do. And all you have to do is open it up, allow the body to do what it's supposed to do. And then it just like, the amount of athletes, wow, it's magic. Like I feel so good. Like it's, it's not magic. It's, it's literally just what you're supposed to do. It's what you've been doing your whole life until a strength coach got you and told you not to do that. And you just never question it because it's an authority figure and that's okay. Like you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't question the coach that that's going through. If you're a 15, 16 year old athlete, you should be able to trust them and listen to them. But these coaches haven't done enough, like introspective on like what they're actually saying. And they're kind of draining these athletes out of, they're, they're just natural movement patterns. It's, it's, uh, it's hard, man. It's hard when you start to see these, these, these realities. And, you know, like I had a, uh, an athlete I worked with who, uh, was parkour, right? He started training with parkour with me when he was 11 and he was a football player as well, but he got concussed and his freshman year, he had to drop football, but he was looking to try and go for a scholarship. So we moved him over to track and I had a elite track and field coach who I worked with, who I sent him to. So that coach had taken me from like a 13, 400 to like a 12 second hundred in 11 weeks. Um, so in like, uh, you know, football terms, that's like, a, I don't know what, a five, five, five to a four, nine, 40, something like that. Um, <clears throat> so I sent my, my student over there and he, you know, you know, he, he got really fast and then he had to go run track and they were just running him way too much volume. So. You know, junior year, he was third in state, I think, or sixth in state in the 300. And then they just blew his hamstring out before his senior year and, you know, lost all that opportunity to to go to uh, um, to the next level with it. And, it. and it was like, we saw the writing on the wall. Like, you can't, he couldn't train the volume that they were, they were putting him in, you know, on top of this, you know, the same squat bench deadlift type 
training in the environment. They want them in there four days a week lifting weights. They're running, you know, eight, four hundreds for hundred meter runners. It's like, but there's not, it's, it's really hard. It's a difficult situation for those kids, you know, when, if they're going through that school system, how to, uh, how to negotiate that and not get ground up by it. Yeah. So, and and that makes sense. And one of the tough things too, is like, I caught myself, like, like part of the education piece with kids is tough because it's like, you don't want them to lose the belief factor. Like one of the biggest reasons I succeeded in college is just because I blindly believed in my coaches. And like, if I believe, if I, if I saw what we did training wise, and I saw what we did practice wise, the way I see it now into like, this is so stupid. Like, why are we practicing this way? Why are we training this way? And I lost that belief factor. It would be brutal for me because I can't change anything. Like I'm not changing anything as a athlete. Like I don't have the power to change anything as an athlete. And now not only do I not have the power, but now I know that what I'm doing is not work is not the right thought process. And now I'm still going to have to do it. But now my intent's going to be much lower. My belief in what I'm going to do is going to be much lower. And so that that's a tough part that I struggle with too, is like, how much do you want to like, especially in the private sector, when an athlete comes in and tells me like their college coach is having them do this and this. And if they're coming to me again, it's a biased population of people that are probably just a little bit more educated or at least into the training world a little bit more. Cause that's why they're seeking out, seeking out this like weird Yoakam strength guy. Like they're, they're into this some way. Um, but how do you t- communicate with them? Like, the truth of like what's going on with their program and just allowing them to have intent and belief in what they're doing. Um, so that, that's a part I find myself struggling with all the time with, uh, with my athletes as well. Yeah. Power of placebos and, and nocebos is, is such a big part of what we do. And people don't realize that I was, uh, was listening to Lane Norton on the Andrew Huberman podcast. He's talking about this study. I, I need to track it down and, and make sure I've got the the figures right, but they had um, like three different, groups who were uh who were doing like a, a similar training program one was a control group the other was on uh testosterone and the other was was being given mock testosterone so they weren't actually getting any any drugs but they were being told that they were on the drugs and uh the the group that was getting placebo steroids got is almost as much of an improvement as the group that was actually taking steroids they got a consistently significantly higher improvement than the control group. So like 50% of the effect of like every intervention that we do, you know, on average across all the different types of interventions we try is actually fundamentally about the, the belief that the, that the, that the, the student or patient has in it. And so, yeah, as you're, as a coach who's in your position, you can see, Hey, this is way suboptimal. But how do I help the athlete without without actually informing them in ways that will will hurt them? And and then also like there's this weird thing which was like the responsibility of you don't want to hide important information from an athlete, but you also don't want to give them information in a context in which it's actually going to inhibit their performance. So tell me about how you how how do you think about negotiating that in your context? Yeah, I, I, obviously it depends like per athlete, but I, I try to give them the information. I try to do it like I give them the information and how I see it. I talk about how I see it, what I believe in, what we're doing here, our goal of what we're doing here to give them the information in a general sense. Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. And trying not to attach that to their program, attach that to what they're doing. Um, 
so that they don't sometimes like a lot of times I've had athletes, it's like they, they grab onto everything that we're talking about, all the information they have, the pieces, and they don't attach it. Like they don't apply that to their program. They'll talk about their program in good light and the good piece. And that's where I think it like, like that's the frustrating thing with coaches too. It's like the placebo is so important. Like, so just don't, don't break your athletes. Like, like that's your number one job. Like if you can just, if you're a coach, you can probably get an athlete to believe in what you do. Like, you can probably get them to believe in you. You are probably pretty good at getting that person to believe in what you're doing and that they're coming to you for that reason because they believe in you. So your number one job, just don't break them. Like, don't run eight, 400 meter. Like, it, the, the athlete's going to come to you. They're probably going to appeal to authority just because it's at the time period in their life where they're at. You are in a position of power. If you don't have all the answers, and I don't think all of us have the answers, and if you think you really don't have close to the answer just don't break them like that's your number one goal keep the placebo effect there and don't break their athletes but we we, we just we lose like these these athletes come to them and they get the power trip of like this athlete's looking to me i should have the answer i have this and then we just like beat them down into the ground and break them so it's like it, it's it's very frustrating it's like i talk all the time there's a couple of things like don't sell your poison as a coach. Like that frustrates the hell out of me. Like you don't have to sell poison to your athletes. Like they're going to come and believe into you. Like you don't have to sell them a mini band around their knees. You don't have to sell them fragility. Like that's one of the biggest things coaches, PTs, all of like our field salespeople on. They sell them on fragility. You are broken. You are fragile. You are going to break. You need me. It's yeah. like they they will come to you regardless of that. Why are we taking the like empowerment piece out of them? Because then they get stuck in this thought process. And I, I, I am very passionate about this. It's like they get stuck in this process of fragileness. I can't do this. I can't do this. And you see it all the time in a college world. These athletes like, you're sure? Like, you're sure I should land that way? Like my one coach told me I shouldn't. It's like, just just go. Because this transitions into they 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 think they're unable. So then they stop doing things that they're capable of. And then they actually become become unable. So they think they're unable and they actually become unable. And then when they go to something where they're going to be required to land that way in sport, they're going to be required to cut that way in sport because you don't get a choice like these. The, the other person's going to force you into positions you don't want to be into. They're going to win the movement problem sometimes, especially the higher level athletics you go. So then you're going to find yourself actually unable you're going to find yourself probably hurt in those positions because you haven't been there before and then you double down on the belief of i am unable and then you go through this like cycle and it's bigger than sports because you see it in like our our, like american society of all these like people thinking they're unable to do movement unable to do anything more than walk unable to do anything more than run and like it's start now i'm seeing it with my 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 group of like athlete my group of peers too like we're 26 27 it's like i'm too old for that my knee hurts like this like i'm I'm too old for this and then it transitions to the 30s to the 40s and like what's that look like when you're 60 or like our society keeps going forward and everybody's living to their 80 or 90 you know like what does that like 60 years of fragileness and inability look like when you're at that level it's gonna be so bad. And I had two grandparents that like, they went down these two different journeys. Like my grandma, she went down the the rabbit hole of I'm fragile. I need the doctor. I need the med. Like she went through this whole process. And when they were 75, you could see my grandpa climbing trees, cutting everything down and like doing all this. And my, and he subscribed to the belief of like probably a little bit too far, but he subscribed to the belief. I, I'm able, I'm able to do this. Like I am invincible. And he like, he truly believes that in his head. Like he's climbing these like 30 foot tall trees, cutting down things. 
And you have my grandma sitting there. Right. Yeah. And you have my grandma sitting there who she had 60 years of conditioning of you are unable, you are sick, you come from a sick family, you have this. And like she's in a wheelchair, unable to do things. So that's where I think it is very important. And, and then why it matters more than coaches even think it matters is that's going to affect the athlete for the rest of their lives. Like I want my athletes to leave when we're done at 22, still craving like, okay, I'm 22. I graduated college athletics. What else can I do with my body? Like, what else can I do rather than I'm done with college athletics? I'm too old for everything. And that's where a lot of like college athletes are at. It's, it's, they, they were sold on this fragileness that just survive the, survive the thing that you're doing, reach the highest level while you're surviving that. And then as soon as that level's over, you're done with movement because your body's fragile and you're not able to do it. And you're already 22. It's tragic. I mean, I see it so much just like starting with little kids right? Like how much we are feeding our fears um, into little kids. I was at the park with my uh, youngest daughter, who's just about to turn five. And um, she had just learned to do the monkey bars, right? And then we taught her to do the monkey bars while well, uh, only having one hand per bar, right? And so she's up there and she gets stranded on one hand and she's just wiggling back and forth on one hand. And finally, she, she, she stabilizes herself and she makes the next one, right? And I give my kids lots of independence. I'm not even that close to her. I'm just walking my dog around in a circle near her. And so there's this other little boy there and his grandfather. And the little boy goes out and wants to hang on one arm and shake like he saw my daughter do. And the the the, the grandfather's like, that's bad for your shoulder. Don't do that. I'm like, this kid's four years old. His shoulder's incredibly elastic. He's He barely weighs anything, right? It's like, let him explore his body. He'll figure it out. Uh, and his shoulder is going to be way stronger and healthier for getting exposed to things. But we're constantly feeding those kinds of messages into, into our kids. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's tragic. It's tragic. We're, we're teaching ourselves to be fearful and in pain all the time. And we don't realize the power of the frames that we're we're feeding to kids you know just totally subconsciously um you know because of safetyism culture yeah and and it's because it's the only way it's like so much easier to make money that way and get an athlete to what you like if you if you if they don't have a problem you can make the problem and then sell the solution to the same problem and that That's, that's one of the things that drives me insane and now it's like coaches it's not even ill intent like it's like they don't even realize they're doing it because it's four years of college of them being told like the coach themselves was told that for four years of call. It's like so much deeper in like our society, like the 75 year old grandpa, like he's not ill intent. Like tell he like he, his intent is the best for that kid. Like he, he actually believes that because somebody else has probably told that grandpa that, you know, like, so that's where it's a a really struggle with that. He came up to me and chatted and was so impressed with, with Katie and the way she moves and was talking about, you know, I was talking about my brand and play and how important that is. And he was, he was all about it. It was just like, stuff comes out of people because they're imbibing it all the time. I was going to just mention this, but you made the connection for me, which is like, it, it is coming out of this sort of orthopedic approach to thinking about, about movement, right? Where we're, you know, how many times does someone come up to you and they're like, Oh yeah. You know, Hey coach, my back hurts. And it's like, like I'm, oh, I'm dealing with some back pain. And they're like, well, you know, my leg's shorter than the other. And I, I slipped a disc and I've got upper cross syndrome. And like, that's probably why my back hurts. And I'm always like, no, your back probably hurts because your back hurts and you just need to make it stronger and more mobile and like work on your emotional attachment to your back pain. Like there's, 
all these specific mechanical reasons that people get attached to, I think 99% of the time, they're, they're misleading, right? They're, they're not actually the real cause of it, but it's so hard for people to hear that. It's so hard for people to hear. You probably don't have a leg length discrepancy. You probably just have a way that you're habitually carrying your body. Um, even if you did, so does Usain Bolt, and he's the fastest man in the world, right? <laughs> you, okay, so your disc looks fun, funky on an x-ray. Turns out 80% of people your age have funky looking dex, uh, discs on x-rays. Most of them aren't in pain. But people struggle so much with that message. It just, it's so difficult to penetrate. So like working with athletes, I'm sure you're getting that message. How do you communicate with an athlete to help them let go of these nocebo paradigms that they're stuck with it? Yeah, I mean, like you said, you mentioned the 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 um the leg length thing, man. The amount of times I'm like, it's like, are my hips tight? And and I've I've heard this probably seven times in the past two months. The, my hips tight or my back is tight, and it's because of my legs. And then they'll show me their legs, and it's like one is like when they're doing it, it's like they're like hiking up. One, it's like, man, what what are we talking about, man? Like what? Like you said, you're saying both, but man, that stuff drives me nuts because it's just stuff that they were just told. But it's like. Okay, you you have an issue like, like as an athlete. Either you're you're not solving movement problems on the field as well as you want to. You're not playing as well as you want to. You're not outputting as much as you want to. You're in pain. You you want to get out of pain. Like you have these problems, and when you give the solution of okay, let's go level up your life. Like <laughs> you have this wrong with you. You have this wrong with you. Like or like you're not training. You're probably undertrained and not overtrained. Um, you're probably not moving the way that we, you want to move. You, you probably have all these things that we have wrong. We let's go fix these. Let's go level them up. And they don't like, they, they almost want something wrong with them because then it gives them hope to something is wrong with me. That's why I'm not performing. That's what, like, then, then it's, it's, uh, I was talking about uh, thinking, reading, thinking fast and slow. And one of the things I loved about the book is like, when we are faced with hard problems, we love to our type our system one replaces that hard problem with a simple problem so we can solve the simple problem. And that's what we're doing. It's like you have back pain, you have this, you have this. And it's probably because like you said, you're not mobile, you're not strong, you're not moving the way you should. Um, like we can level all these things up. It's a super complex problem, super complex system. Um, but what our brain does is back pain. We need to find a simple solution and simple answer to that back pain. Um, let's go brace everything brace everything okay now you have a simple solution your brain can wrap your around and like head around that so that that that's one thing that's like educating the athletes on that educated stories are super big i love telling athletes like i tell every back pain athlete look when i i tell them the story about the herniated disc every one of them like relates to that and like okay and when you get rid of that fear with the athletes it, it's so big it's like okay i promise you i promise you it doesn't feel good right now like you, maybe you do have something wrong maybe it's just sore like whatever it is but it'll go away like just breathe like cuz that's one of the things the athletes they feel in pain and they see their athletic career flash i saw my athletic career flash before my eyes when you can't move you physically can't move you're stuck or you're not playing the way that you want to play you're like it's all over. Like, oh, all this hard work, everything that I'm doing, all the parents' pressure that you have on you, all the society pressure that you have on you, and you can't do it. Every, and you, so you panic. And it's like you have that panic aspect. So having them calm down from that panic, be like, okay, like 
give me two weeks of this movement. Give me two weeks of this movement. And I, I, I bet we get out of this. All you got to do is like, just, we just let's keep moving. Let, let's keep doing these things. Like take a deep breath, like view the body the way it is. Like, here's my story. Here's how I've done it. Here's his story. I've seen this guy do it. Um, and we, we kind of tell stories around this thing to get rid of that. Cause that's what they, they were told stories to get them in this fragile mindset. They were told stories and they were told simple answers to super complex problems. So tell them stories to get them out of that mindset. Um, and, and I found a great effect to that, to like athletes start like, okay, I can do this. And once you prove it to them, that's a big thing too. It's like two weeks in, like, uh, I am Aaron Kubal talks all the time about like how back most back pain can be resolved within two weeks of just not movement. Like you don't even have to do, you don't have to do anything special. It's literally just give them two weeks and the body will sort the back pain out and they'll be good. You don't need to cut a person open. Back pain is super pisses me off too, because it's like, like an athlete will struggle with a back pain that go in for an MRI. Everybody has something messed up with their disc and then they'll get put in this. Like th- th- I've seen athletes be told like schedule um, um, a back surgery within a week, within a week of going in, they go in and they have them scheduled for a back surgery within that same week. I'm like, what are you doing? Like it blows my mind. And you, like the amount of and the athletes where it's like, I probably had four athletes that I have not saved, but told them, don't do that. Like, just give me two weeks and it goes away. Like it goes away. So that part is like, just tell stories and just give them time and space to allow, like their body's not broken. Not everything is going to like, just, just take a deep breath. Like that's the biggest thing. Take a deep breath. And I bet the pain goes away within two weeks. And once it does and you get them moving, they're like, holy crap. And then they get into this headspace of, okay, what else have I been told? But I I think that's a big piece of it. I developed knee pain when I was, 26 so a year into doing parkour and it lasted for about 18 months right and i went through like the first doctor i went to was like the local you know cheap insurance primary care doctor and he told me like hey i've looked at skeletons they're not designed to squat you shouldn't be squatting that deep (laughs) so i worked my way up eventually i got myself a consult with the the uh, the surgeon who was working with the seattle supersonics who were still a thing back then um and he you know he got x-rays on my knee he said you've got chondromalacia right your your femur is digging out the back of your patellar it's all junky looking back there it's just genetic it's just the shape of your hips you'll probably need a, need a knee replacement by the time you're 35 stop doing parkour and i was like okay doc just give me a prescription to go see a pt just give me a prescription to go see a pt he's like it's not going to help you like it's just this is the problem. This is the structure, right? <clears throat> I went to see that. Finally, got a prescription to go see a PT. Six weeks later, out of knee pain, right? I've had a few bouts with knee pain since then, but I'm 40 years old. I don't have any knee replacements, right? Still bouncing 29 inches, right? 30 inches up in the air. So, um, the the perverse incentives for surgery that are out there, and the just lack of education in pain science that orthopedic people have is it's, it's, um, it's a travesty. It's absolutely absurd. Yeah. And what you're talking about, you're, you're saying you're a 40 year old with no knee pain. Um, and this is not a, like, you're not a normal 40 year old. That's, that's the cool thing too. It's like, you're a 40 year old that's doing parkour. You're a 40 year old that's doing this ninja stuff. It's like, you would look at your training and be like, that's insane for a 20 year old and you're a 40 year old with this. So it's, it's not only that you're just a 40 year old that, avoided knee pain by avoiding movement it's like you are doing everything that your body is like physically capable of you're squeezing out that aspect of it 
well not having the injuries because that that's a big piece of like it's like people view this like one or the other light it's like okay it can be this safe route and just like because that's where i hear my friend group starting to talk about it's like i could do that but i really don't want to get i don't really don't want to do that so i'm just i'm just gonna stay safe and go through there it's like no dude like look at all of this around you and see like you're pushing the boundaries you're 40 years old and you don't have that knee surgery yeah i mean i my one of my main training stimulus that i use for my legs is uh, 64 inch uh, depth drops, and you know I'll do uh, I'll drop 48 inches and uh, do a hurdle hop out of it. Um, so, you know these are the type of things that are very stressful to knees. Um, and I, I, you know, I'll I'll do like a squat thing, you know, once every couple of weeks. You know the the heavy squat stuff. I, I find that for me and my needs, um, it's good to maintain that type of strength, but actually. It's not, uh, it's not as good for me to do a lot of it. And the type of things that you're told is going to destroy your knees are actually what, what makes me an elastic and powerful athlete. So, <laughs> you know, your mileage may vary, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, your, your, the type of movements that you're integrating are not necessarily the type that you're going to be able to track progress on real clearly all the time. Right. Or at least, you know, it's not quite the same as like you added five pounds to a barbell. So what is your attitude towards the importance of metrics versus like your intuitive sense of an athlete's progression? And then um, how you balance that as you're working with athletes over time? Yeah. So metrics really are just the cookies for the athletes. Like we, we track, we have laser timers, we have jump mats, uh, we have all the weightlifting stuff that we talk about. Um and most of that is literally just like a cookie for the athlete. Like, look, you, you PR'd here, you did all this because it, it, it is tough for an athlete. And it'd probably be tough for myself too. If I'm like, okay, like this coach is telling me all of this stuff, but like, how do I actually know? And if you have a huge off season, it's like, okay, well, maybe I lose, start to lose intense. So it's like giving them the cookies of, okay, you're PRing in flight 10, you're PRing your jump mat, you're PRing in all of your lifts without it being, because this is where I think the metrics become the issue is they become your goal. Like the metrics are not your goal. Uh, it's a, again, it's a, it's replacing the complex answer of creating a great athlete with the simple answer of I increase their metrics. And I talk all the time in the college sector, it's really bad because you get these metrics and you can show this coach this pretty spreadsheet of all these green numbers and all these increases and you get a pat on the back and it feels good when you show everybody, but it's like, did it work? Like, like, like did it work? It, 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 we did that. That's great. That's cool. But did it work? So I try to complete train everything in the complex world in the in the in the play based world we are going to climb we are going to crawl we are going to compete we are doing going to do a bunch of races we are going to do a bunch of um small sided games that we do we're going to add in a ton of movement variability in our strength and accessory type lifts like all of this and then we're going to come back to our outputs and we're going to sprinkle in our outputs we're going to jump on the jump mat today we're going to run through the 40 the, the laser gates today we're going to maybe back squat today maybe bench press today and we're going to PR like that, that. That's, that's how we're going to do it. We're going to tease those numbers. We're going to give them the numbers because again, the stimulus that you're getting from all this complex training is so, is so high. Like it, it's an insane amount of stimulus into the body. So of course it, the body adapts and gets this. And now we're building everything that we want to build and giving them the cookies of seeing that while also working on things that I feel like matter just a little bit more, which is like the processing, the, 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 perception reaction type elements of things and the movement variability like 
the 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 brain and the brain solving problems is great but also adding even if you want to if you're not comfortable going there and you want to do leave that for the skill sport or leave that for the the sport itself and leave that for the the um the sport coaches uh adding movement variability is another piece that's super simple that i feel like we're not we're not sprinkling in with our athletes so adding in all these movement variabilities Showing an athlete, like there's another thing like showing an athlete a skill they learned, I think is huge. Like you can do a handstand now. You can do a front handspring now. You can add this. And then they get addicted to more of the, I can learn something new. I can do something new. I think that's amazing and trying to keep intent high, but also sprinkling in the cookies for like, it's a little piece of cookie of like, oh, I also PR to my, like, I just give them a little bit of hope and showing a little bit of light. And then the big piece is when they step onto the field, like that's all that really matters. Most of it's just keeping them interested in training long enough. So when they step onto the field, they start to see these things. It's like, man, like I feel so much stronger. My, my coach says I'm able to get into my stance finally. Like, like you didn't, like you got stronger and all that, but it was like now your movement variability and your body's allowed to go into a stance and find positions of strength that you didn't have before. And that's going to help so much more than just increasing your back squat we did increase your back squat that's great that was your cookie to get you going but look at all these positions that we found ourselves in in training and look at what you're finding yourself in in sport now and look how you and feel how you feel not look how you feel 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 how you feel and how you're moving and that once you get an athlete in that cycle that you can do so much with that athlete and they really just kind of believe in what you're doing which is again we talk about the placebo aspect that's so important in training yeah absolutely so kind of related to that i was curious about your take on programming right like pro i've been you know i i've done lots of like programs for myself where i write a program and i'll kind of have a plan for what i'm trying to achieve and you know you always have to to like predicting the future is really hard right like variables change between now and then so you're always you're always steering that program to some degree anyways and i've been thinking a lot about the idea that like tracking what you've done is in a lot of ways more important than like having a really clear uh program right you want goals and then you want to track whether the things you're doing are taking you to your goals uh but knowing three months in advance the block that you're going to be on and knowing exactly how many uh you know sprints you're going to do on that day because it's going to fit your program that seems increasingly it seems you know, kind of absurd, actually, to me, like, how are you going to do that? So I'm curious how you, you know, are with the athletes you're working with, how are you thinking about the trajectory of their training from, say, the beginning of the offseason to when they return to sport? Yeah, so I probably view it in a, a very similar light. But like you were talking about, like, planning out in three months in advance. I saw a tweet yesterday. It's like, if you don't have your 2023, 2024 plan built out, you're behind. I was like, what in the hell are you guys talking about? And it's like a bunch of engagement. Like, yeah, coach, just finished mine. Just it's like, what are we talking about? Like, it, it's such a backwards mindset of like you, you, it's not real. Like, that's not real. Like that, that is just again the simple answer of I have programmed all of this out. I have done my job. Don't fire me because I had look at this. I planned all this out for the like, it's like man, that you have no idea what that athlete's going to look like. You, and that's the thing, college world, you don't even know what your freshmen are going to look like when you get them. Like you don't even know what athlete or population you're programming for. And you've built out this 2023, 2024, it blows my mind, man. And the other thing we find into is like this periodization model of everything. Like I've seen so many athletes peak and deload themselves into being the same four, like same athlete for four years in a row in college. It's like, all right, this is our peak block. This is our deload block. It's like, 
what are like what are we doing there man like you you're not training like you you're under trained you're you're doing two to three weeks of solid training and then you're not training for one week and then you're peaking for two weeks and then you got your conference match the next week it's like you just wasted six weeks of training because and it goes back to that fr- fragile mindset of if i train i won't be able to compete if i train it's like if i do this too much then i'm not peaked and it's like i just feel like we just have this body like the body just so misunderstood in like how we program, we take the art and beauty out of this movement and we create this athlete that's way overthinking, like again, placebo, like that athlete needs the peak and that athlete needs the deload because you told him he needed it. Like, I, like if you just have the athlete train through and get the work in, like, I, I promise, like I, I do some dumb things with my body and I go in and it's like, that is the best. That's when I perform the best. It's like when I'm doing dumb things with my body, I'm going through and I'm not thinking about, Oh man, it's, it's peak week. Like, cause when you have that added anxiety and added pressure and like, Oh, I messed up that sleep cycle. I messed up this. It's like the body will figure out the problem at hand. There, there is a way to direct the body, but like we have, I feel like we think we can direct the body in this like pinpoint linear aspect and like, it's going to be perfect. And we create this such narrow, like, narrow range for this athlete to navigate through that if you move at all if you move out all out of this narrow range which is like life is not a narrow range sport is definitely not a narrow range if you move at all out of this perfect narrow range everything's going to go wrong and of course it always goes wrong that's why like if you have 12 athletes like 12 olympic athletes in the finals even you can't predict which one is going to win but like you have this perfect periodized program for the four years so it's like we're taking we're not understanding how the body works like we, we if we could if we knew how the body worked all of us would be able to go create the gold medalist for the next 100 meter dash and you can't even predict the gold medalist in the finals you know like you have nine beautiful athletes out there and they're just going to figure it out and go through but we're going to come back and say we have this year-long periodization program figured out it's like we're, we're, we're creating these fragile mindset of athletes and peaking and deloading these athletes so my program is like every week every day will be different um, like the things that I keep, I'll like keep the sets and reps of a lift, like same for two weeks. So like, well, well, let's say we'll hit a five rep max for two weeks. We'll hit a three, like conjugate style, kind of like that. But the lift changes every single week. The accessories change every single week. The movement problems we solve change every single week. The days stay similar just so they can kind of like, okay, we're going to do upper like um, the movement problems on Monday. We're going to do lower movement problems on Tuesday, that type of thought process. But every week we come in, we're changing. And the only like, and then we're tracking the metrics to show that, okay, you guys are training through all of this. Like we're, we're changing the stimulus every single day. Um, you guys are PRing on stuff without ever like one thing I love doing is PRing in a lift without touching it for 12 yeah. to 14 weeks. Like we back squat, we won't touch the back squat for 12 to 14 weeks. We'll come back, we'll PR on it. Like that, that's like that, that is my goal with the program is are we improving on the test without training for the test itself? Like we're just training, we're training, we're leveling up the body, we're moving forward in that sense. We're not stuck in this peaking deload mindset that Oh, so many athletes get stuck in and we're creating a wide range of training for the wide range that is sport and life and then getting results off of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, I remember reading Franz Bosch's book, um, strength and coordination integrated approach. And he has a section on like, you look at the research and they compare different, um, different periodization models. There's no, there's not a hair's breadth of difference between them. There's no, there's no robust research that says programming works at all. His, his takeaway was just the only thing that the research shows is that doing the same thing all the time doesn't work as good as doing a variety of things. So yeah, like do some endurance for a while and then switch to some maximal strength and then switch to some speed. But 
if you think that you're going to know what an athlete needs six months in advance, it's like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe on the day he shows up and he's supposed to peak, his girlfriend broke up with him and he didn't sleep last night. Right. Or, or on the flip side, right. Maybe hooked up with the girl he hasn't seen, you know, maybe on this day that you're like, you know, okay, now it's time to start your deload. And like, you know, he played pickup basketball with his friends and dunked for the first time in three, uh, three months. And the girl that he likes, you know, just hit him back for the first time and he's ready to go. Right. Like his, his emotional states are so high and you're like, no, no, program says deload. Right. It's kind of a, yeah, it's an absurd mindset. Um, Last question I wanted to ask you, because I think it's cool. One of the things I like about you is you wear your influences on your sleeve, right? So many people are like, oh, yeah, it's all my idea. It's all my idea. And you're like, no, these are the guys who are who are really inspiring me. And they're a unique set of people who you're really pulling on coming into the uh, um, sport performance sort of area. So who are some of your big influences right now? And how are you applying those messages in or applying those ideas within your context? Yeah, I would say like the the big three would be like some of the big three would be you, like Dr. Tommy John, um, probably Apiros, uh, Austin Einhorn, um, may like Michael's Wayful. Like, there's so many. All of my podcast guests, I steal something from. This is a cool thing about having a podcast. I have a hundred podcast guests on. Every single person is telling me a hundred different ways to train, and I think they're all smart. That's why I'm having them come on the podcast. And every single person that comes on the podcast is telling me a different answer. Not, not that they're arguing, but they're just saying, this is how I see it. This is how I'm like, I think you're smart. There's something there. So I can grab from all hundred of these people and kind of apply it to my simple brain of like, this is how I'm piecing what you said. This is how I'm piecing what Dr. Tommy John said. This is how I'm piecing. And that's where like, I kind of feel bad sometimes when I'm like, I got this influence from him. I'm like, I don't know if they want me saying that because they probably <laughs> didn't really mean that, but this is how like I process yeah. what they were saying. But that that's the, that's a big thing for me is like, there are no experts like that. No expert approach to training, I think is so big. And it's so opening and like having a hundred different people on the podcast, every single one tells me they feel like they don't really have the answer, um, but they have pieces of the answer. And every person has like a different piece of the answer. And some people overlap. And that's where it's like, okay, like I have 17 coaches overlapping in this play aspect of things. There's probably something there. So like, let's dive a little bit deeper in there. Okay. This athlete's using play for, or this coach is using play for this. This coach is using play for that. And that that's where I really try to grab my information from, find where they're overlapping, but also kind of meld what they're saying into it and not trying to just swear by the, the textbook. Cause that's where like, I, I think a big problem in our, like our field and like why we're not seeing movement the way you see movement. I remember having you on the podcast and you told me your background. It's like 17 different movement exploration backgrounds and like 17 different coaches that you're looking at. You're in the dance world. Like you're in the lifting world. You're in the parkour world. You're in the climbing world. You, you're seeing all these different pieces to grab from. And coaches don't have that. They don't have that background to grab from. They have American football. They have CSCS. Um, and then they're just back into American football or an American sports. And they have this one line of like, of course, they're not seeing it in this way because they've never had their eyes open to seeing it this way. So one of the best things about having the podcast, I have a hundred people that are telling me to see it in all these different lights. And some of it sucks. Maybe some of it's great. Maybe some of it's okay. Maybe. And you're just grabbing pieces from there, but at least I get to see it from a different light mm -hmm. and start thinking in that aspect rather than seeing it in this, like I, I, I've never, and I used to see it in this way because I was in the same thought process of American football, American football coach. And you, you only see like the blinders are always on and you, you feel like you're always right. Cause you've never been exposed to a different thought process. So I think that's really big. It's just exposing yourself to 
to a thought process that you're not currently exposed to exposing to yourself. Like what I, my goal for the podcast this month or like this season is like, okay, I want to get somebody like in, like I had, uh, um, Powell, Callum Powell on, uh, for yeah. he's a, yeah, he's a professional parkour athlete. I really want to dive into parkour athletes. Like, okay, dive into what you're seeing and tell me, uh, maybe some dance athletes, maybe some, um, uh, like even like uh, I want to get in like this, some psych people, but like trying to really like go to the extremes. That's why I find doc- some people like Doctor Tommy John says some crazy shit, man. Like he says some crazy shit, but I love going to the absolute extreme people and just getting pulled all the way into that rabbit hole and then bringing myself back to middle. Because if you get stuck in the extreme rabbit holes, you're probably just going to go off the deep end and like go a little bit crazy. But bringing myself back to that middle ground after being exposed to the extreme and grabbing just the few good nuggets that I want there and applying that to training in real life and not getting stuck in a certain rabbit hole or a certain thought process. Yeah, you want to, you know, there's a, I think there's a certain level of contrarianism that's valuable, right? Because if you're too sort of controlled in the way you think, then it's it's too easy to have a status quo bias, right? And like the status quo is always wrong to some degree. And it takes someone who's disagreeable enough to say that it's wrong. The problem is that the disagree- people who are disagreeable enough to say that the system is wrong are going to say everything about the system is wrong a lot of the time. And so you want to balance it. It's like you should listen to, listen to Brad Schoenfield, right? And then you should listen to me, uh, I guess. Um, uh, but people, you know, people who who do have an alternative pers- uh, per- uh, perspective, um, I think that you want to always be able to, obviously, people who are really scientifically literate and epistemologically sound and nuanced are always valuable, kind of depending on their perspective. But it's, it is good to say, okay, this is kind of a really good articulation of what the mainstream is. When it comes to diet, Lane Norton, who I mentioned earlier, it's like, that's about as middle of the road on understanding what makes for effective diet strategies as there is. But he does it really, really well, right? And he's going to explain to you why it works really, really well. And then, you know, you can look at, listen to Paul Saladino talk about why, why, why carnivore diets can work and Maybe they can work in specific context and you'll understand that context better if you understand what Lane Norton has to say. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the big pieces I want to touch on is like, don't rebel to rebel. Like that, that was one of the biggest things. Like when I started talking about this and I was a young strength coach, when I started having people like you on that were pulling me outside of this world and I started talking about and seeing this and I'd have these young guys just like, yeah, like F the system. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, no man, that's just the opposite. Like the, the, it just blindly accepting things is bad, but also rebelling just to rebel, just to say you're a rebel and stand out is also bad. Like you, you gotta have the, like, the middle ground of like thinking for yourself. Like it's that thinking for yourself aspect that you have to have. And that, that was one piece. Like, I, I feel like there's, there's, there's people that get kind of my message wrong. And then I get these DMS all the time. It's like, yeah, like have the system burn the burner, all that. And it's like, not really like, that's not really what I'm saying. I want to pull us a little bit out of the, we're so stuck in one certain spot. It, like maybe we do need to pull just a little bit over to the extreme, just a little bit more to bring us back to the center, but it, it's not rebelling to rel. It's not just F the system, burn it all down. Like th- there's a reason the system is there from where we were. Um, but now we're just stuck a little bit. And like you said, it just comes is some people just need to say some things and then it, it'll slowly start to move in this cycle. But 
again, that that's one of the things, especially young, the young coaches that really like, we really haven't seen anything or done anything. And it's like, we are just screaming, like burn it all down. It's like, of course you want it to burn down. It's like the, the tyrant is up there and he has all the money and all the things. Of course that makes sense to you, but there's probably a reason the tyrant is up there. Let's learn from that person before we burn it all down and before we take it all out and um, think for ourselves. So when it is all burnt down or like we are moving in a different direction, we're not just blindly leading people because we decided to like light a torch to everything. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, when you throw it all out, you also like a lot of times you throw out the the systems by which you would know whether what you're replacing with is better. Right. So it's like, okay, you know, you, you burn down the, the Roman emperor <laughs> empire. It's like, Oh yeah, there was, there's some bad things about it, but I don't see it. You know, it's going to take a long while to build those aqueducts again. Yeah. Um, cool. So, I think we should 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 call it there. I'd love to dig deeper into how you're you're bringing the um, the parkour element into strength conditioning. I think that's super super intriguing. Um, but I think that's a good place to stop for now. I'm getting a little tired myself. Uh, I would just love to have you tell people where they can find you, what you got going on. Yeah, just Austin Yoakum on Instagram, and we're, we've been doing some stuff on Twitter. But just Austin Yoakum, and whatever they want to find there, they find. If they, they hate it all, they hate it all. If they like some <laughs> of it, they like some of it. And if they want to sign up for a program, they can. I mean, I I remember meeting you three years ago, and I remember seeing your first front flip on uh, on social media. So you go from a, a two hundred fifty five pound nose guard to somebody who throws front flips. Uh, it's pretty cool uh, the the stuff that you're you're bringing together and the the population you're bringing it to. So, um, yeah, thanks for joining me, and uh, I look forward to our next chat. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the influence and all the the ideas you've given me. Absolutely.